Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome back to the Western Rookie Podcast. This will be episode 58. I'm your co-host, Brian Krebs. My sidekick, Dan Matthews, is not going to be here tonight. He has some stuff going on. They just moved into a new place, and his son has got an event that Dan wanted to take him to himself. So he asked me if I could take over this episode riding solo giving me the keys to the spaceship full control. So I'm excited to really let her buck. Um, and we got a really cool guest on tonight. We have a little bit of a surprise in store for everyone. It was certainly a surprise for me. So I'm excited to, to jump into the episode. But before we do, we have an announcement to make. The Western Rookie will have downloadable pack lists as soon as application season's over. So when you're starting to get into summer, you're starting to think about your fall hunts, the tags you drew, we're going to release some packing lists. It's going to be a great foundation, a great starter list with all the basics. It's going to have all the gear that I use and that we vetted over seasons of hunting the West. Um, We're going to have options to add some more gear. It's going to be whether it's an early season archery hunt or a late season rifle hunt. We're going to have all of that available for free. Um, we're going to try to make a version of it easy to use on your cell phone. If you just want a digital version, we're also going to make it, um, optimized to print out. If you want a paper copy, I know that's the way I always do it is just print out one, take a pen, some things I check off, some things I circle. If I have to go to the store and buy something, but we're going to have that available. We're not sure where it'll be yet. We might decide to go with a Western rookie website. We'll have to, we might have to build that so we could be out there, but it'll be a free download for you this fall to help you get the best start to your Western hunt and help more people have success. Nobody wants to forget something important when they arrive to elk camp or to meal deer camp. And so we just want to help everyone be as prepared as possible to have an experience of a lifetime. So look for that. Probably most uh, probably going to be in the June or July time frame, so nothing crazy, but we want to give people enough time to really start thinking about their hunt, especially if you're new to Western hunting. There might be some pieces of gear you got to pick up. You might have to find you know, what is going to work for your system and make some decisions there, so we want to give people plenty of time to start thinking about their Western hunt coming up this fall. And with that, I see our guest is in the lobby, so I'm going to pull him in here, and we're going to fire this episode off. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Hey, oh, uh, we got Branson in. Um, like I said in the intro, it's kind of a cool little episode here because Branson and I found out, what, two weeks ago that we're actually related. Um, that was kind of a surprise to yes, both sir. of us. Yeah. So it sure was. 
I think Jeremiah gave you a little heads up. He didn't give me any heads up. Oh, really? He didn't say anything about it? No, he didn't tell me anything. He just said, oh, yeah, we got this guy Branson on the team. Uh, he's just a stone cold killer, man. He just, you know, smokes stuff. He's out in Montana, shoots big bulls and big mule deer. We love to have him on released out, the released outdoors team and never said anything about your last name. Clearly, he knew my last name, so you didn't even say, like, by the way, you should check and see if he's related to you. Yeah, that's all he told me about you is he's like, he's got the same last name as you. He's like, you got to be related. And I was like, yeah, there's no way we're not related. I mean, I haven't heard of many Krebs before, but uh, if he's from that central Minnesota, North Dakota area, he's got to be related. Sure yeah, enough. I looked you up because I was like, so I just joined the Western Rookie Podcast. And so we're obviously looking up for, you know, content for people to come on that are experienced in the West. And I remember that conversation, that podcast with Christian and Jeremiah. And I'm like looking you up. I'm like, wait a second. You know, your Instagram handles Branson K. It's like, okay, look, pull up your profile though. And it's like Branson Krebs. And right away I text my dad, I'm like, Hey, do you know how many, uh, family members we have out in Montana? Cause I just ran across someone that's a, like an elk guide shoots all kinds of big mule deer and bulls. And my brother's like, yep, gotta be a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. Small world. It really is, but I'm glad I got to meet you. Another cousin, another relative in the hunting industry. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's just something about it, man. There's just something about hunting, and especially the West. I mean, you, you kind of we kind of went back and forth on Instagram, and you said your dad moved West to start guiding, and I get it, man. There's something about Montana, that lifestyle, that that hunting lifestyle, where you can live it as many days as you guys do. You can. I definitely understand why. You know why your dad did that, and man, I wish some days I could do it too. Oh, no, absolutely. And I get to be the one that picks it all up easy. He had to work hard for it all. And I still work hard for it, but I get to be in the family business and just kind of born into it. So I got really lucky in that way. Oh, yeah. So did you, do you guys have a lot of returning clients each year or is it a lot of new clients that you're picking up at shows? I would say probably 75% of our clients are repeat clients. Um and then, you know, the other 25 is new clients that we get. The last two years, we haven't done any sports shows or anything like that. Just, you know, repeat clients coming back and telling their friends and all this and that. So we're luckily, we have a really good client base. It's brought a lot of family of theirs and friends for our business and just very blessed that way. Yeah. Find out here and there that you got another cousin over in Minnesota or over in North Dakota. And all of a sudden, they start telling family members and it just gets the ball rolling, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. That's funny. That's I told right. my dad about exactly. it and he is in the process of selling his uh, business, hopefully. And he's like, Hey, you should talk to Branson and see what it's, what's the deal about getting out elk hunting. Um, Cause if I sell this thing, I want to go. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, I'll talk to him. I'll Perfect. see what's up. He's a rifle hunter. Well, he's getting a little let's older. Do it. Let's... Yeah. Okay. I got you. So yeah, the, the one hard thing about our rifle elk stuff is we do have, some really good bulls on there, but it's a really hard special draw tag to get. But let's start building some points. Let's yeah. get it rolling. Yeah, if Montana could do crossbows, man, that'd be close. He's still not quite like oh. running down a bugle and bull shape, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, Montana just doesn't let that crossbow thing slide. So, nope, not yet. But you're, you are, you're, from what I understood, you guys are in a unit where mule deer is the general tag, right? 
Yeah, it's still a draw for non-residents, but it's basically 100% guaranteed tag um, for going with an outfitter. So if you're your do-it-yourself guy and you're applying for Montana, you could only buy one preference point for the general deer comp tag. And then if you book with an outfitter, you get two preference points. So you buy your your regular preference point and then you buy an outfitter sponsored preference point. So you go into the drawing with two. So if you book with an outfitter, you kind of get a better chance um, of drawing a general deer tag. But I would say it's still roughly pretty much a, oh, it's a really high percentage to draw tags. Oh, yeah. we I was there a couple of years ago. No, didn't use any points, just drew it. Um, it's obviously point creeps a real thing. And so, you, you know, we've we've been playing that Wyoming, Montana back and forth for a few years. And this is the year our luck ran out. And so we're just we're just going to bite the bullet and go to Colorado <laughs> for a year. <laughs> so there you go. But yeah, I'm he still, was super excited. Still find a place to hunt down there. We had a, I got, I got a line on a spot. I got a tip. I got a guy, a local that's helping us out. So I'm, I'm optimistic for it's archery elk. I, I shot a bull in Colorado a few years ago with my rifle, but you know that archery elk game, that's a completely different story. Oh, it is. It's, it's. I like it a lot better, actually, you know, having them be vocal like that and being able to actually know where they are versus during rifle season, you're like, ah, where do I even start, you know, kind of thing, unless you got snow where you can find their tracks and start that way. But archery season is a whole different ball game. Yeah, my brother only owns a bow because elk bugle in September. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason he bow hunts at all is because the rut is in September in archery season. Otherwise, he just, he wouldn't even bow hunt. He doesn't really even bow hunt whitetails back home. And we got a pretty good farm. I mean, we got access to a little over six hundred acres with what they own and oh, and perfect. what the family owns. But yeah, he's just not interested in the bow hunting thing at all until the elk start bugling, and then he's the first one in the truck ready to go. <laughs> you guys don't have many you know, units in North Dakota where you guys can elk hunt, is there? Um, the whole state has, is part of the unit. Um, there's some elk in the Northeast, not a ton, but most of them are in the West. So like you get some random bulls running around the middle, you'll see a picture in like a okay. field or something, but yeah, you don't, if you draw, it's a once in a lifetime and you don't want to draw that. Oh, unit I gotcha. Cause there's a good chance you ain't gonna find one. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, when I lived in North Dakota, we just moved my, I just got married too. So my wife is finishing her residency down here in the Twin Cities. But when I lived there, I got lucky and drew that tag on the first try. Wow. Yeah. Talk about tough rifle And now you draw. don't get to hunt anymore. Nope. You can't do it anymore. <laughs> well, I could win a tag. I could win a raffle tag. Um, but you talk oh, about gotcha. tough to draw in the 700s for rifle elk. This was three quarters of a percent chance. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a once in a lifetime right there. Yeah, even if you could draw again, and I can't even apply. Um, but man, was it a wild hunt! I mean, it's from what I gather, it's really close to the same country you guys are in. Um, it was I shot mine. Yeah, that's of what Adora. I kind of thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I shot I shot a three fifty four. Um, I don't think you can see the picture of it. He's mounted. You know, when you talk about, when you talk to your clients about like windowing, like you got to make sure you're in the window, you can shoot the window, right? And they're like, 
uh what <laughs> well my elk is a perfect example because it's peeking its head around the corner of the hallway and looking right into my office like it's sticking its nose in the window so that's what i try to tell people like i'll take a picture of my phone and i'm like this is what i'm talking about this is the window absolutely i like that yeah because what we've done is all archery hunting basically except i draw i got super lucky with two tags with my rifle and i filled both of them but other than that we're always doing general unit right archery tags so mm-hmm. I see that South Dakota has some really good elk hunting down there too. Yeah. I think it's hard to draw. I've never, I've never even dabbled. I've never had a big game tag in South Dakota. I'm probably leaving a lot on the table since it's like right next door, but I've never, even yeah, applied. I know. Same. I mean, same with us. I mean, we're, we're only an hour from the South Dakota border when we're in our hunting season. So it's like, I mean, I should apply down there too build some more points i've got points building all over the states right now but not south dakota do you have do you have like a strategy that you put out um like short-term mid-term long-term states that you're building points in yeah i kind of break it down for short term is like wyoming colorado stuff because the units that i want to hunt are fairly easy to draw i don't really care if i you know build like a ton of points and then you go on this once in a lifetime hunt down in Colorado and Wyoming. But like for Nevada, Utah and Arizona, those are like, like long-term ones that where I just, I won't even apply. I just build, 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 build. And then maybe someday, you know, around when I'm 50 years old, I'll start applying then. And well, you know, I actually put in my name into the hat and see if I can draw something then. But yeah, I skip Nevada, but I do Arizona and I do Utah. And man, if you talk about long, long strategy utah is like forever if you want to hunt the good units oh yeah yeah they say like you'll never you really statistically will never draw the tag but then i know of a guy that does draw a tag so it's like there's a chance so that's why i still apply every year but i'm like man do i take this 160 dollars for this license and just buy 160 dollars worth of you know the raffle tickets or something like that, or save that $160. And then every year that $160 for like each state and just then go on a $6,000, $7,000 hunt somewhere, you know, but one of those things it's, you want to hunt in every state, but yeah, you got to find the time and money. Yeah. I don't even, I'm not personally a guy that has this desire to just hunt Utah. I want to elk hunt every year. And there's, there's every year options, but then I'd also like to, I'd like to mix in a good unit every now and then, you know what I mean? Like I'm completely happy to go hunt an over the counter tag or a general unit tag, but it would be nice every five years, every 10 years to know you're in a special spot. Um, and so that's kind of why I plan the point games out. Like Arizona is probably going to be my mid tier, maybe even Colorado points. Right. So you do the over the counter when you need a tag, but you start building like five points. Maybe is where I'd draw the line and cash in Arizona might be five Mm -hmm. to 10. And then Utah's like, if you ever draw at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. That's how it is for Utah for me. I'm like, I'll probably never draw any of these tags, but Arizona, I got a couple of units that I would probably cash in around, I don't know, eight points or so. So in a couple of years. Yeah. I, I thought it was funny because my Utah odds doubled this year. I went from 0.2% to 0.4% because I went one point hey, bracket increasing. up and they have that random odd. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting there. I'm knocking on the door. Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance. 
There is a chance. There is a chance. So when you is there anything that beats Montana though, or is Montana just the favorite place to go elk hunting and mule deer hunting? <clears throat> For me, it's been you know, born and raised in Montana, it's definitely my number one pick, you know, got all these spots that, you know, and I don't really, I don't have the time necessarily to go to all these other states. That's why I just build points in these, but then to learn these units in the other states will take a lot of time to kill really good bulls and being in Montana, it's like, man, I got big bulls, you know, all over the place. I mean, hard tags for non-residents to draw, but residents, it's a fairly easy tag to draw. And it's just like, man, I just, I like sticking to Montana. I really do. Yeah. Montana probably has the most outdoor opportunity between fishing, hunting, the season links, the number of species that, I mean, it's just really hard to come in above Montana for an outdoorsman. Mm -hmm. Oh, it really is. I mean, we hunt right now, this time of the year, we're hunting mountain lion and wolves and ice fishing. And there's some rivers open where you can fly fish and spin fish and all that. And then, you know, rolling up here, April 15th, will be turkey season and black bear season. And then that'll run till June 1st. And then, man, June 15th and some units. And then you're going to, you know, fly fishing now starts pretty much mid end of June. So then you're running fly fishing all summer long until August and then, you know, antelope August 15th and then for archery and then that, you know, deer and elk September, uh, is it second this year and then rifle October 21st and then antelope rifles October 7th starting in there. And then that's just, man, it's just a go, 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 repeat, repeat. It's, it's really nice. So I saw that you also have a real estate license, but where, where does that come in? It sounded like you had the whole year already booked. When do you go show some properties? I try to do that in the summertime, but, um, I'm, I'm willing to show anybody property any time of the year. My mom, she's a real estate agent. So that's where I fell on that line. Follow my dad's footsteps in the outfitting stuff and then follow my mom's footsteps in the real estate business. But I'm dealing with so many clients for fishing and hunting that I was like, man, I, I love the outdoors. And I, a lot of these clients that come out are like, man, this is a place is awesome. Montana is the best. Let's go see some property. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Perfect. Oh, yeah, you get a little segue, a little, like, buy one, get one discount almost. Like, hey, let's come out elk hunting. Exactly. And, oh, by the way, that ranch is for sale. Yeah, yeah, seriously. No, that's that's the truth. That's what I try to get them that way. What's kind of the craziest when you clients do come out? Like, what are the craziest things that happen? Is it typically, like, new clients that just aren't quite there and they, you know, you can tell they don't know a lot of stuff or do you get some like experienced guys that are just like badass cowboys that just take it and run? Yeah, I would say probably it comes down to like an 80, 20 ratio for guys that are actually experienced hunters versus guys that are never hunted before. Um, we go into these sports shows. We really get to kind of almost handpick and just feel out the situation, see what our clients are like in that situation. Um, and most of the time, everybody that is coming out is like hunted before and pretty knowledgeable and all that kind of stuff. But there has been a couple that like some booking agent guys have maybe sent us before and we're like, we have no idea about the person and they come out and you're like, wow, this is, this is, this is the real deal. Like, <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> do you guys do horses or are you doing like day hunts 
just day hunts. We, my dad used to have a national forest permit lease up in the Northwest corner of Montana where we, our home base is, um, but kind of wolves impacted that and just other outfitters in the area there and just national forest lease. So, you know, public access to everybody. We used to run a lot of horses up there. And then um, pretty much when the wolves really moved in, we, my dad had some leases over East and then we've just expanded from there. And now pretty much just all over East on private land. Um, we still run some, some spring black bear up in this Northwest corner up here. But other than that, we're strictly Eastern, Eastern Montana stuff, all private land. I feel like it's wild where you just casually say, yeah, we do a little bit in the Northwest and then a little, a lot in the Southeast. But when you're talking about the state like Montana, that's like a whole day's worth of travel. Oh yeah. It's nine hours from our hometown over to, over to the East side. So you guys live in the Northwest year round. And yeah. Then we're up by like Kalispell. Oh wow. Yeah. Right in the heart of the grizzly country. Oh yeah. Lots of grizzlies and black bears and big mountains and logging and lots of snow. My first elk hunt ever was an archery elk hunt up by Trout Creek, Knoxon, Thompson Falls. Um, I think that's a little bit mm-hmm. southwest of you, if I have my Montana cities yeah. down. Man, was that some yeah, steep, no, I dark was born. Timber. Yeah, that is, it's nasty country. That's where I was kind of, well, I was born in Plains, so it's right next to Thompson Creek, and that's where I graduated high school and all that stuff up there, so... Thompson River and all the Thompson areas, definitely where I grew up, pounding the hills back in all that country. So I know that really well. But yeah, steep, nasty, dark timber. We had we had a guy that put an arrow in a big bull, but he accidentally hit the blade and tracked it for two days. It was pretty clear that this elk wasn't going to die. Uh, met up with Kyle, started rutting again. But other than that, man, it was a rough hunt. I mean, we had like five encounters, which I had no idea. I had no basis, right? It was my first archery hunt. But we never went back, and so I guess that kind of told me, yeah, the guys didn't really like that unit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a tough unit. Um, it really is. It's it's hard. I mean, if you don't know the country, and just there's not that many elk up there anyways as it is, and just the lack of game is kind of, um, in the last couple of years, actually probably the last 10 years, it's decreased a lot because of wolves and mountain lions and more grizzly bears moving in down there and a lot of black bears eating calves and all that kind of stuff. So it's been kind of a rough, rough deal up there. It really has. It's sad to see. Um, but, uh, hope a lot of these wolf trappers and stuff like that are really nailing these wolves. And it's definitely, I've seen a lot better genetics and a little bit more elk here and there. Well, that's good. Are you guys wolf hunting just as like your own fun thing to do? It's a hobby or are you bringing clients out as well for that? No, just, it's, this is all fun thing for us. Um, it's just, you know, most of the clients always ask like, what is your percentage of like success? What's your success rate? And it's one of those things, especially when you're trying to answer for a wolf. Like, I mean, a success rate on a wolf hunt. I mean, I won't, I only know a few guys on my hand that I can count on my hand that have actually howled one, called one in and shot one. And so it's not very often happens. So we just don't even, we don't even want to get into that kind of, you know, outfitting deal where we have clients come in and you promise them something and nothing ever happens kind of like that. Yeah. If they're, they're smart. They're really smart. Yeah. You're probably like, yeah, our success rate's like 20%. And they're like, oh my God, that's pretty high. Like 20% of your clients shoot a wolf. And they're like, no, no, no. 
twenty percent of our clients see a wolf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that'd be honest truth. I mean, there's uh, another outfitter up there that is running um, wolf trapping hunts. So they get their wolf certificate trapping license, and then they go out with one of their guides that's a really good wolf trapper, and then they set their own traps and all that kind of stuff, and do like a wolf like trap hunt like that which is they have really high success rate and it seems like something we would should get into but we don't i don't know we're just our bread and butter is meal deer and antelope and elk so yeah you can't do everything either um and by the looks of you guys i mean i was scrolling the website and i'm like these meal deer are giants like huge huge meal deer i don't know where in southeast montana you guys are finding these but it was not the public ground that we were in in 2021 i'll tell you that for free (laughs) that's private land so it's all all managed really well we've had a lot of these leases for oh my dad's had one of them for 20 25 years over there on the east side and then um we've had a couple others for 10 15 years and just keep expanding and expanding but um definitely private land and just managing our deer and taking only old deer and bad genetics out it's really helped and definitely don't do any doe control. Um, you know, the meal deer numbers are definitely down in Montana and they, and especially in like the region's 700 area, they are giving like six, seven doe tags out, meal deer doe tags out per person. And it is, it's just awful. I mean, wow. I know people need the meat and stuff like this, but I mean, uh, meal deer numbers are definitely hurting. Well, yeah, that seems wild, especially considering, I don't know how, I think you guys got some decent rain this year, but the year we were there was like year three on a record drought. I mean, we were hunting stuff that there was nothing. It was flatter than my lawn. And I'm just like, man, trying to be a meal deer and cut out a living in this country seems wild. Like there's nothing, no cover, no food, there's no water, there's cattle everywhere. It looked like it was a tough go if you were a meal deer. Yeah, the last three years have been really, really brutal. Luckily, we had some, some decent moisture last year, and it looks like we're getting pretty good moisture over on the east side this year. So hopefully, it just will get better. It's you know, it's like those gaps, those windows of like three, four years of a drought, and then you have like three years of good, good you know moisture, and then back to a drought, and just yeah. like a you know keeps a cycle, which kind of sucks. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we pray for moisture. Definitely <laughs> pray for rain. Yeah. On the, on the mule deer side, you know, kind of comparing to like the, how hard it is to get a wolf. What's like the, like how often, or what's the percentage that you get your client, like a shot opportunity at a good buck on the mule deer side? Is that pretty high? Yeah, I'd say it's a really high success hunt. I mean, obviously we're not going to just shoot any kind of buck for numbers We're you know, we're quantity or I mean, we're quality over quantity. And then I know a lot of outfitters are, you know, quantity over quality, but we're opposite. You know, we want to have these leases and stuff and manage these leases for years to come. I mean, this is our livelihood. This is our, you know, career. So we're not just going to shoot out a ranch, but um, no, I would say we, you know, we have some really high success hunts. I mean, they're, great hunts and you can shoot a really nice deer yeah i'm looking at some of these bucks i mean this one in particular i'm looking at like man this buck looks like he's in the 180s 190s i mean he's just a tank um 
looks like we a- kill a couple deer that are in the 180s um every year we'll probably you know if we take like let's say we take 30 deer hunters on our 150,000 acres we have we'll probably kill 10 deer in the 150 to 160 class and then we're gonna kill five deer in the high like 165 to 170 class and then we're gonna kill another five deer that are one probably 70 to 175 and then another five in that 175 to 180 and then usually we kill maybe one maybe one a year i wouldn't say two but usually one a year in the 185 190 um we didn't last year but the two years before that we each each of those years we both killed 190s in there and actually there were typicals too maybe just one little kicker point off a g2 or something but uh, but i would say majority of our mule deer that we're killing i would say the 155 to 160 range right in there yeah um because it's a you know it's a general general tag i mean montana is not known for giant mule deer like colorado and utah and arizona nevada where they have right milder winters and stuff like that less predators but um no we're killing some really good deer i really like to be honest with our clients and tell them exactly what their expectations are because i have a lot of clients that come up and like i want a 200 inch deer (laughs) montana's not known for 200 inch deer i mean you want to go to sonora or alberta saskatchewan for those and that those hunts are going to run you 15 20 grand maybe 25 to you know so versus you know one of our hunts around six grand yeah that's a that's a steep difference and that and even then you're not guaranteed mm-hmm. like 200 is so special like people don't understand they see it all it is they see it on instagram because that's because the guys that post a 200 inch buck get the traction and the reach and so everyone sees it so then all you're seeing is 200 inch bucks and you think they live behind every <clears> rock mm-hmm. i think it's like in north dakota which is a pretty big mule deer state right with the west the the medora the you know the badlands you hear about a couple a year and that's it and you know it's usually private land yeah that's same with montana yeah it's special i'm looking at one picture here on the website right now it's clearly you with a beautiful mule deer but it looks like you backpacked this thing up to the tallest peak in the breaks you could find and then took a skyline picture did you really get lucky enough that that thing expired right there in that in that spot is it i think i know what picture you're talking about um Nice four by four, kind of wide. Yeah, nice wide four by in the four. Background, maybe a little, little bit of pink, pink sky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you were decked out in the QU. Uh, looks like a sunset. Yeah, the green, green. <laughs> and I think I'm wearing a green hat in that one. Maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, green it's for sure that hat. one. Did you, probably a bow hunt, oh, right? Yeah, that, yeah he died. Oh no, probably rifle hunt. Oh, but yeah. we take the orange off for all the pictures. That's one of my clients deer. I remember that one. Um, no, it actually died right on those one of those bluffs in there like that. There's just so many gumbo knobs. And it's weird on that ranch particular. They, um, I don't know why, but they all bed on the tops of all the knobs in there. It's kind of weird. You know, you think you're like your mule deer, or whitetail, or just any animals like going to bed in the thickest, nastiest, darkest drainage out of sight of everybody. But on this ranch, all the mule deer, they like bed all on the tops of the skylines. It's just to watch, overlook the view. It's, it's, I don't know. It's weird. 
I suppose that makes it easy as a guide to find them and then really hard to sneak up on them. It, it does. That's exactly, that's exactly the right answer on that. It's easy to see them, but hard to kill them. Yeah, I can imagine. That's kind of where I shot my mule deer, my last mule deer in Montana. Um, I shot the biggest buck we saw all week and it, we hunted hard and it was only about 120 inch three by three. It wasn't, wasn't something to brag hey, it's about. All right. And, uh, but he was, he was bedded like three feet from the top of the bluff, um, in this, in this pasture that was completely mowed. And at the time I didn't know he was injured, but it, it turns out he was an injured buck we ran into earlier in the week and my buddy didn't get a shot off at him. He had, to, it looked like he, someone had shot his back leg, like right at the ankle. Um, and so I'm trying to crawl and I'm trying to crawl up and over this ridge and I'm trying to use whatever sage bush is there. And it's not many to kind of sneak behind, but I'm telling you, like, this was a fairway, like a, not even a fairway. This was the greens. Like there was no grass oh, no. to hide in and he's bedded. And I had a, I had a pretty decent magnification on my scope. So I cranked it to 25 and I was looking at his eye and I could tell he was asleep because his eyes were closed from like 600 yards out. And so I'm like, as long as he's asleep, I'm going to keep crawling. But when he wakes up, like, this gig is up. I'm not going to be able to sneak in on this buck in the middle of this fairway. And so I get to, like, 496 yards. I'm in the wide open. It would have looked really silly if you were the mule deer watching this. Like, what's that dude doing? Like, he's going to crawl across this cement yeah. floor and sneak up on me. And his eyes opens up. And I'm like, shoot. All right. Well, I practiced for this all year long. You know, I bought this rifle for long range shooting. Should be able to do it. We don't have a good wind, or we don't have much wind at all. So I dial it in. I do my elevation. I do my windage. I shoot. And it. I remember getting right back on them. That was part of the – I built a heavy rifle with an extreme muzzle brake. So I was hoping to get back on and track my own shots because I want to know where these bullets are landing, right? Like I want to know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Dust flies right over his rump. I'm like, okay, that's really strange because I dialed for a 10-mile-an-hour crosswind, and I'm still 2 MOA to the right. shouldn't be that bad. But I was like, must be. So I measured it, adjusted, shot. Dust flies right over his back. This deer doesn't move. And so now I'm like, I dialed for 496. We're equal elevation. I'm not shooting up. I'm not shooting down. We're relatively low. I mean, what's southeast Montana, like 3,000 feet, 4,000 feet? It's not very high. Yeah, it's about about 3,000, 2,500. Yeah, and I sighted this gun in at 217. So I'm like, it's not like I'm making drastic alpine shots with the air's thinner. And I'm really thinking, but I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. I measure that. Third shot, I put it right through his heart. He never stood up. I, she stood up and then tipped over. Come to find out, my buddy was filming in a phone scope from a different angle the whole thing. The 45-minute stock, me crawling up and over, <laughs> decide not there, crawling back. Going over, nope, not there either, crawling back. And I got the whole thing on film. So he trimmed it down to just that minute and a half. And he's like, if you ever tell people you smoked this thing on the first shot, I'm going to show them the proof that it took you three. And I'm like, well, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair now. They got they got dirt on you. Yeah, he's got it. He's got, he kept the original. So I've always been honest, but I'm honest anyway. Like I would have loved to dump him on the first one, but two clean misses to measure in. I basically measured myself in and then put the last one on it right through his heart. Buck fever. <laughs> yeah, I call it buck fever. Um, I was just happy that all the movements made sense. You know, I pulled out, I have this app on my phone that's got the whole 
nine yards, you put in your elevation, your wind, everything. It helps you do your ballistics, and that's what I use for my dope chart. So I'm just happy that my movements made sense. Still don't know what happened, like why my bullet was shooting so far to the right. I really don't think I misjudged a 20-mile-an-hour wind and called it 10, but you never know what happens in these canyons. No, yeah, no, you you really don't. That's the hardest thing is wind. I mean, I see guys with the Kessler thing right where they're at, laying there, measuring the wind, and then it's ten right here, and then over there, four, five hundred, six hundred yards away, you don't know what it is. I mean, that's where your bullet's going, so that's where you need to measure your windage from versus where you're at right here. But I mean, it's what it is. You can only do so much, and odds are against you most of the time. Yeah, I always just try to get as close as I possibly can, and that was I was I was gonna crawl into about two fifty. I had a little hill that I could, if I could crawl to two fifty, I was gonna shoot from there. But I thought I I didn't know this was an injured buck. If I would have known this guy was injured, I probably would have pushed it a little farther because my buddy got into like fifteen yards on him two days earlier and spooked him by chance. Oh, he was just walking into a spot. Spooked him, got so flustered, his gun was on a sling. And it was a wide buck, like 22 inches wide. So he kind of got, like he said, that buck fever. Mm-hmm. It's a giant, it's a giant. And he uh, it, he yeah. didn't get a shot off at it. It ran away. But he did see that out of that broken leg. So if I would have known that, I would have pushed in a little bit harder and tried to get that closer shot because just kind of banking he wasn't going to bust. But you never know. He could have wide open. Exactly. So um. What's like something that clients do that just irks you as a guide? Like what's that what's that one or two things that you just like it happens and it just boils you? Um one that really comes to mind is when I tell the client just stay down below this knob. They're walking usually behind me and I say just stay behind me, just stay right behind me, do exactly what I do and I'm going to go up to the top of this knob. And I just going to peek over. I want you to stay right below me. Don't come over this knob yet. And I just start tiptoeing up and that glassing over the ridge and then scanning. And then I'll take another step and then scan again, take another step and scan again. And then the client all of a sudden just walks up and just stands right on top of the knob. That really irks me. (laughs) You never know. I mean, the deer can be right, right below you. And now you're taking, you're taking all this time and, they're the one ruining their own hunt. And I tell them, you know, how many mule deer have you killed versus I haven't killed that many, but how many have I guided that people have killed versus you, you know, you booked, you booked this hunt to, you know, go on a guided hunt. Let me help you out here. Oh yeah. I mean, skyline and yourself in mule deer country, it's usually not an issue with elk hunting if you're in the black timber, right? Because you're not going to find a skyline mm-hmm. when you're in the timber. You can still get busted from sight. We do it every year. But for mule deer, man, those things live and die by their eyes. As much, like the whitetail nose and it's the oh, mule deer yeah. eyes. Yeah, just come running right up over the corner. Um, yeah, that would irk me too, man. And I'm not even a guy. Like if my brother did yeah, that, that, I would one, be like, dude, that you one know does irk me. <laughs> Yeah, that's one that really comes to mind. I'm trying to think of another one that um, that one's probably the biggest one. I just, you know, I'm, I'm trying super hard for the client and then he ruins it himself, but doesn't think he does, but he is. But uh, I'm trying to think. I'll try to think of another one, too. When you're when you guys are mule deer hunting. I'm sure things are different because you got great opportunity and great land and ranches to hunt. 
But for someone that's doing the DIY public land method, how much of your time are, would you say they should spend behind glass? Like find a good spot and stay there and just glass versus glass a little bit, walk a little bit, glass a little bit. Yeah, if it's rut, I move pockets. I'll get up on a glassing knob, sit for one glassing knob for about an hour or two. Then I'll move and go to another high glassing point move you know sit there for an hour or two but if it's early season um you know deer aren't really moving traveling they're not bucks aren't moving does aren't moving um i sit up on a knob and glass and glass and glass and glass i'll sit on a knob all day with my clients and i'll sit there the whole day i literally will sit there the whole day and pick apart the whole place with a spotting scope on a tripod i'll put my binoculars on a tripod and i will just go through every sagebrush bush north south and then east and west working it and i i don't stop and then i'll just keep moving and i just i try to look at the sun to the angle of the sun because you know angle of the sun's going to be where the deer are going to be you know in the shaded stuff versus where they're out in the sun so if that sun's moving keep on checking you know the ridges of the ridges and stuff where that sun's hasn't been yet and versus when it's going to be there is kind of how i pick it apart but yeah just that's what I, I tell people. If you do it yourself, Hunter, sit up on a ridge and just glass and glass and glass and glass and glass. Yeah, that's probably the one thing that I don't do enough of. I'm used to the black timber elk, you know, ripping bugles and running ridges and moving. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I it's like I understand the glassing. I've done a lot of scouting, especially that North Dakota tag. I mean, I'd spend all day behind the spotter. But I probably don't move it enough, and all of my mule deer tags have been in October, so pre-rut, earlier. That's early season for the mule deer woods. Um, definitely haven't done the all-day sits, but you're trying to, at that point, you're trying to find a bedded buck, right? That's what you're doing. Like, oh, we got yeah. one. I see a tine. Looks like it could be a good buck. Let's sneak in and get a better look at this thing. That's exactly That's exactly it. Is that kind of tough to, like, to do your clients – get kind of bored with that sometimes yeah they they do they do they are like hey can we go over to this ridge can we go do this can we go do that i'm like you know we can do that but i think this is best and then i run with the how many meal deer have you killed versus (laughs) you know me i don't say that but uh, that's kind of what i'm thinking in my head sometimes but we'll go do some things i will you know, I'll spot like an antler or something that's close by and I'll have those guys run down and get it. And then I just keep glassing even super harder because then what if, you know, that some deer sees them and jumps up and I'm not paying attention and they don't paying attention either. And so I kind of let them go run around a little bit underneath me in my visual or back behind a knob behind me back there. Yeah. I'll let them shift a little bit here and there. But other than that, are we, I have them try to keep them still, and it is it is tough. I will say that it's tough sitting there in one spot. Well, I, I suppose is it tough too because are you guys running two spotters? Like if if they were you, would they also like if they're your level of expertise, would they also be glassing behind a spotter, or is it pretty much you looking yeah. and they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs? Yeah, most of the time, I would say most of the time it's just me with the spotter. They'll have some you know, decent pair of binoculars, but they really aren't, you know, looking as hard as I am. Okay. So is it, 
what happens when you get that guy in camp? And you probably already know his name. You're thinking of him already. But that guy, he maybe comes every year, comes a lot, and he's just a stone-cold killer. He just doesn't have good mule deer access. And to him, it's worth it to just – he's more so coming with you to, to be able to hunt where you guys hunt. He could do it all himself. Mm-hmm. He's super good, and he's behind the glass just as much or more than you. Is that almost like just a sigh of relief as a guide? Like, okay, this guy gets it. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It definitely takes the pressure off you a little bit because he's working just as hard as you are, and like that team bond there, you can get some stuff done. You really did. You can. Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, me and my brother are by no means guides, but we've both done – I don't know, 15, 20 Western hunts a piece between antelope, mule deer, elk. I've done, I've, I've actually gotten kind of into the Western whitetail hunt. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's really fun. Just running these ridges above these Creek beds and just glassing for rutting whitetails running back and forth. Um, but if we got dad a tag, an elk tag, and he wanted to come out there with you, we, me and my brother would probably just come as observers and we'd be like, all right, yeah, dad, absolutely. just run around with Branson and Jamin. Do whatever they tell you to do, but we're going to be like a ridge over or a property over just like glass and other elk, like just seeing what we can see. Like we're just going to cat, we're just going to be the net. Like we're casting a wider net. These guys will probably find the elk that you're actually going to kill, but just in case something slips by or there's another group over here, like we'd just be out there just being like guides number three and four. (laughs) No, that totally, it, that is, it sounds good to me. I like more eyes, the better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially when rifle, the country you're hunting and in a rifle unit, it's all about seeing them, right? Can we see them? Is it early enough? Can we get in on them? Are they up and moving already in the evening? Are they going to bed soon in the morning? And let's, what's the plan? Can we get there fast enough type of thing? With the archery. Yeah, no, that's exactly the game plan. We probably would just get in the way, right? Running around in the timber with bugle tubes <laughs> and five guys, you're just going to blow elk. Yeah, I know that happens that way too, but I say like what we, our elk hunts kind of typically archery elk hunts. We, you know, call them in the morning when they're bugling, coming off fields or something like that out of pastures and stuff. They were, you know, calling them and cutting them off kind of thing. And then when they get in their bedding area, we call it quits for the day. Then usually we're running a mule deer, you know, elk combo maybe they have an antelope tag too so now we're going to go spot and stock some antelope spot and stock some mule deer kind of stuff like that those antelope are rutting the same time as the elk so we'll do some decoy work with the antelope and everything like that um but then sometimes in the evening because september the last couple years have been like i mean pretty much all last year and then the year before it was 90 degrees for 30 days straight every day was 90 degrees maybe even 100 i mean the day i killed my elk last year is 106 degrees and so like in the evenings we've been sitting water some water holes wallows or something like that and then you got a deer tag and an elk tag in your pocket we've had clients shoot meal deer coming in the water hole and then 20 minutes later shooting elk out of the water hole so kind of that's kind of a really fun hunt too oh my gosh talk about days to remember shoot a big mule deer and then shoot a big elk and in like the same hunt oh man like if you're really good in the whitetail woods you can maybe shoot that first doe that comes out into the plot and then if you're lucky and a buck walks out sometimes you can pull off two whitetails but to pull off a mule deer and an elk that would be insane oh we've had a couple guys do it. we've had two three guys do it yeah if my co-host was here dan we've actually had some 
Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if my co-host Dan was here, he would tell the story about, I think it was his first elk or his second elk. He shot this elk in the morning. Whole group goes in, quarters it up. On the way out, they spot a giant mule deer, and he had both tags in Colorado. So he shoots his mule deer later that evening with the rifle hunt. I mean, just wild. I mean, I've never heard of people doubling up on a big bull and a big mule deer in the same day. Yeah, no, it doesn't happen very often, but there's some guys that are lucky. This one guy, this client of ours, he's actually from Minnesota, and he is he is lucky. I mean, lucky. He actually shot on another ranch, too, uh, didn't have elk. He shot a mule deer out of a tree stand in an alfalfa field, and then he shot an antelope out of a tree stand in the alfalfa field, too. <laughs> Not the same day, but he shot two in the same hunt out of, with a bow. Wow. I'm trying to get a guy from You Minnesota. don't hear many people shooting tree stands, an that, antelope out of a tree stand too Yeah, often. no, that antelope out of a tree stand is nuts because they're usually out in the middle. Like their defense mechanism is we're just going to be out in the middle and we're going to post one antelope looking each, like every 30 degrees in a circle. They're just going to look <laughs> yeah. and keep an eye on it. But I do have a guy from Minnesota that I know, actually from Alexandria, that is just a Western fool, and he's an archery guy, but I don't think he's the kind of guy that would mule deer hunt out of a tree stand. He really, he uses spot and stock mule deer to train him for his sheep hunts. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Man, yeah, lucky guy. He is, he's a fortunate guy, he works really hard. If but he I gets did to, some... If he gets to go sheep hunting. Yeah. He got his... Uh, his name's Mark, and he got his grand sl- or sheep slam with a bow. Um, he oh, did all four. Smokes. Yeah. I did see some sheep on your guys' website. Was that mostly you guys, the family and friends, drawing a sheep tag, or do you guys do some sheep hunts as well? No, we do some sheep hunts. Um, not lately. Uh, just the tag's getting so hard to draw, and, you know, the sheep are not very smart. And so you can pretty much get away without going with an outfitter. That's funny. It's funny you said that. Um, Yeah, Mark did all of his, and he did his Desert Bighorn in Mexico, and then I think he did all three of his other ones in British Columbia or one of the Canadian provinces, just because, like you said, the tag's so hard to draw. Yeah, British Columbia. Yeah, he went up there to do it, um, which is super cool, super cool to be able to do that. So. When you said the guy from Minnesota, I instantly thought of him, but I was like, eh, I don't think he's going to do a mule deer out of a tree stand. I don't think that's his vibe. Yeah, I don't think it was Mark. This guy's name's Austin. Okay. He's down. I don't know exactly what town he's out of, but he's part of the um, Mystic Lake. Um, I don't I can't remember what their tribe is, but he's part of their tribe. Okay. Down there. Yeah, I kind of know where that is. How often, speaking of Minnesota, how often do you get back to Minnesota? You said you got quite a few family members that are still in the area. Yeah, we come back every Christmas. Every Christmas for the last, since I was born, so 25 years, every year for Christmas we drive out, my dad, my mom, my brother, and I, and then usually family dog. And then um, we try to get back in the summer times a little bit, but we haven't been the last probably four years back in the summertime because 
just, you know, that's our time to make more money and being, you know, a guide or an outfitter, you're seasonal worker. So when the fishing season starts in Montana, that's your time to make money. So there's really nothing else to, you know, other trips to go on. So you got to make that money while you can right then. So haven't been to Minnesota in the summertime for a while, but. Oh, heck yeah. Well, the next time you're around for Christmas, you'll have to let us know because, you know, our whole family's still in Alec too. Um, I have to have you over to the shop. Dad just built a shop, like a man cave shop, tool sh- like toy house. Okay. And we got all of the anything that's not like in our homes. So I have a, I had a bowl in there that was just the skull plate, and now I just brought it out because I'm gonna bring it, out, drop it off at the taxidermist. But then all of our dead heads that we find, his elk, his mule deer, some of his bucks, he keeps those in the shop, and so it's pretty fun. We're trying to build that out a little bit, so. Yeah, I'd love to have you guys over and just hang out for an afternoon and catch up. It's kind of funny. Yeah, such no a kidding. Small That'd world. be super fun. Yeah. You said that oh, I really would. A lot of your your mom's side is still in Alec and they're hot is it hop or hoppy? Uh my dad's side. Okay. Hoppy. Hoppy. How's that your dad's side? Isn't he a Krebs? He's a Krebs, but his mom, uh, my grandma is a she is a hobby. Okay. Do you know Brad? Then, hobby? So then my, gr- yep. Yep. That's my dad's like, that's my dad's first cousin. That's like his best friend. It's like his brother. I call him uncle Brad, uncle Brad. So he started, he invented the, apparently he invented the double cowgirl musky bait. Yep. Yep. That's his company. Musky mayhem. That's insane. So I've been trying to get Brad on the podcast. Not really hard. Um, but I have some some buddies in Alec that are big musky fishermen, and they're like, "Oh, we know Brad." Well, and I was like, "Oh, great person to have on the on the Two Bucks podcast, my other podcast, because it's all about outdoor entrepreneurs." Um, and I'm like, "You know, the double cowgirl is like the bread and butter musky bait in the country." Yeah. And he, my buddy goes, "Yeah, this was invented by a guy in Alec." And I'm like, "No, it wasn't. You're lying. Like this was. There's no way a guy in Alexandria invented the world's most popular musky bait." He's like, no, I'm serious. He did. It's musky mayhem. Brad Hoppy. <laughs> so. Yep. Yep. That's Brad. No, we, he comes out hunting with us usually every couple of years, but yeah, he's, he's probably my dad's closest, pro, closest cousin out of all. Uh, then we have Brian Hop. Well, I mean, my dad's got hundreds, it seems like he's got hundreds of, you know, cousins up in Alec and just across Minnesota with being a last name Hoppy. There's so many of them. There really is, but no, we're really tight with Brad. I mean, really tight with Brad. My brother would, um, he would go work at Brad's shop in the summers for, I think like four or five years building baits out up in Alec up there. So. Yeah, that's just wild. And you, you go to any of these stores and it's just like a wall of double cowgirls and triple cowgirls now different sizes mm-hmm. i even made some of my own based on that side for pike but yeah that's super cool now i really know what you mean by uh another family member in the industry i thought you're kind of just joking like yeah it's me my dad and my brother and now we got a cousin that has a podcast i don't know what would it be fourth cousin probably <laughs> uh us yeah so it's my grandpa is your great grandpa's brother so i don't know what domination of cousins that yeah says but I don't know. We're cousins. Yeah. <laughs> We've never gone by a first cousin, second cousin. It's just you're a cousin or you're not. Yeah. No, I agree. Awesome. Your cousin, your family. Cool. So kind of making a full circle then. So you grew up you grew up in the hunting world, man. Like your dad, was he doing it 
before you were born or was it just like when you're really little? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the backstory of my dad. So when he turned 18, um, he graduated out of Minnesota. He, I don't think Burnsville. And when he turned 18, he sold his Trans Am Firebird and bought a plane ticket to uh, Missoula, Montana, and then went to an outfitter and guide school in Victor when he was 18. And that was like a, I think it was a two-year program, or maybe it was just a, I think it was a two-year program, and he said it was hell. And um, after he completed that and was a uh, completed guide school and outfitter in school, so he became a guide. And so he got a couple different outfits he could pick to go to, and there was one down in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that he decided to um, go down there and become a guide. So then he worked, oh, I think seven or eight years down there in Jackson Hole. And actually Brad moved down to Jackson Hole too with my dad and they were roommates down there and lived and rodeoed and then guided and all that stuff for down in Jackson Hole. And then my dad was like, all right, well, I've got enough, you know, hours and time and guides and, you know, all this stuff under his belt that he could become his own outfitter. So he moved up to Montana because there's a lot of different species to hunt and started his business in 93. And yeah, ever since then. That's wild, especially Jackson Hole. I mean, I bet he's seen some big bulls in that neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. Big bulls and big bucks, really big bucks, too. He said there. Back in the day, like the um, elk refuge had like 25,000 head of elk and he would go feed them and all that stuff. And now I think there's only like, what, 3,000 head out there now because of all the wolves killing them all. Well, and they quit feeding them one year. I don't know how that went over. Um, Do you know who he guided with, what outfit in Wyoming he was? Um, I actually don't know. I guess the only one I know is Jake Um, Clark. Hmm. I I don't know some old old timers some okay. real hardcore hunters. My some brother real horse guys. That's all he did was like pack pack. Yeah, my brother brought my dad out. I think it was Wyoming to Jake Clark, um, who at the time was one of the most famous outfits you could go elk hunting with. And my brother was calling him because he's he's gonna give this to my dad for a birthday present or a Christmas present. This elk hunt. Um, both of them going together. My brother really likes to do that. He bought me a he bought me a bow fishing, a two person bow fishing trip for my Christmas present. And it was like, yeah, it's for you and me. That would be fun. I'm like, yeah, good present brother. Like, (laughs) do you buy this for you or do you buy this for me? Um, and he's talking to this guy, Jay Clark. And also my brother's like, wait a second. It seems like you're interviewing me. And he goes, Oh, I definitely am. Like I, I want no part of bringing amateurs, newbies, rookies out here. Like I got to know that you are legitimate you're a quality person i can trust you there's no red flags like we're going into the heart of grizzly country on a long meal train and we're going to spend a week together in the woods you know in my outfit you know it's this is serious stuff i don't take just anybody anymore so i definitely am interviewing you and my brother's like okay this is the kind of guy that i want to go out hunting with yeah no i i've I've been there and done that. A couple interviewed a couple guys kind of like that, but like what? <laughs> Not too hardcore. Yeah. What's if you could ask one question to a to a like a client, like someone you talk to on a sports show, and they're like, they are all in hook, line, and sinker, but you're getting this kind of weird feeling, and you you get one question to ask them to figure out if you really want to take this person hunting or not. What would you ask them? Um. 
I would probably ask them what scope power they have, because if they are a three by nine, they are an old time hunter and they won't be able to shoot over 200 yards. Probably. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I was thinking my question to be, what brand of boots do you have? Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Or ooh, do you wear camo or not camo? Because if they usually, if you got some guys with some Wrangler jeans or something, they're some they're old time. They're I mean they're hardcore hunters and everything, but they they'll have that three by nine scope, and you're gonna be lacking some distance and some animals because you just can't get in close enough for them to be able to find it in their nine power scope. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is there a red flag on the opposite end though? If some guy says like, yeah, I have a 10 by 45 by 80 and you're like, um, who is this person? <laughs> I've heard some, I've, some pretty characters. Um, I've had some weird stories. Um, but yeah, I haven't had any crazy things like that yet. I'm yeah. sure my dad has. Yeah. I suppose back in the day too, cause now people are starting to kind of, figure it out social media and hunting media people understand like what a guy trips about and all that but yeah that's kind of funny that you picked the three by nine because that like screams i hunt whitetails oh yeah no it does it really does i mean there's people that get it done with three by nines but yeah that does seem like it's the whitetail scope i i mean i bought the scope i bought i wanted I knew I wanted a first focal plane. I knew I wanted something that could touch a thousand. I wanted to be able to dial my elevation. I wanted to be able to dial my windage. And with all that and like not having unlimited money, I went with the Vortex Viper, um, five by twenty-five or five to twenty-five by fifty. And man, that scope has treated me well. So it's funny you said that because I was definitely not the three by niner. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of another question I would ask somebody to know like if this guy's got a red flag but i can't really think of anything off the bat i know there's a a bunch but i have a lot of good ones that i've heard and and i've have asked or they've said but i don't know why it's not coming up to me right now that's fine he's probably just under the pressure so um what at what point in this like this hunting life that you've lived did you like decide I'm going to start filming stuff and I'm going to get in with the released outdoors? Cause I see you're wearing the hat right now. Um, when did that all start and take place? And, and what's that been like to add into your already slam schedule of guiding all these clients? Yeah. So what's funny about it is, I don't know if Jeremiah touched on this, but me and Jeremiah, he was, um, he was in my, in my school, we went to school together in Plains, a little town of 1500 people. And so I grew up with Jeremiah since, man, I've been really little. We played all the sports together and he kind of took me under his wing and, um, yeah, he graduated just a couple years older than, you know, a couple years above me. And yeah, we've been just really good buddies, best friends ever since. And he moved down to Kansas and, and we never lost touch. I tell you that, but that's how we got connected and, or not connected, but that's how I'm part of released outdoors is because of Jeremiah. He's, always been one of my best hunting buddies and had a lot of good stories and everything like that. And just grew up hunting and grew up in the same town and been best buds. So that's how I got into that. I got an end to that. Everything kind of, it really, I, all this hunting stuff, it really just kind of lands in my hands. I've, <laughs> I've been really blessed and lucky. I've actually never had to, I mean, I work hard, but I've never had to work super, super hard. Like, you know, a lot of these guys have like my dad and to get into these businesses and do all this stuff, you know, I mean, 
they live and breed it. And I've been just, you know, luckily been blessed to be able to be just handed, handed stuff over. Hey, well, that's kind of what happened to me in this podcast. I got a call one day from Dan Johnson and Dan Matthews, and they said, hey, we're looking for a co-host. We want to put two people behind this thing. How's it? How's that sound to you? Dan said, you kind of like hunting the West. I'm like, sure. I just, I, like, I felt like you did, like Silver Platter, like this awesome podcast opportunity to join. I already had my own, obviously. and So I can kind of see what you're saying there. Same with the Whitetails. You know, we got that family farm in Alexandria and, you know, dad and brother and, and uncle and grandpa and everyone started piecing together land. And now I've got all this great opportunity to just bow hunt and whitetail hunt and try to do, you know, try to do more sweat equity to help earn my keep. But I can definitely see what you're saying there. Definitely have some, some correlations. No, I've been really, I've been really blessed and lucky to be able to do what I do and do what I love. I mean, I really have, I started guiding in 2015. Um, and then you can get my officer's license when I turn 18 and get all my, you know, first aid and all my insurances and all that stuff. So rolling on a few years now, finally. And, uh, that's what I've been doing. Actually, when I went to college over in Washington, I played two years of baseball and, the my school over there didn't start till like way late like end of september so i was actually able to guide um like the first two weeks of archery season when i was 18 and 19 before i even went off to college a couple times and i was like man i'm pretty lucky there too i mean what what other all colleges usually start you know before you know around labor day weekend and you can't go hunting and i was there I am. I find a school that I get a baseball scholarship to go, you know, it starts later in the year and I get to go guide two weeks and make some money before I head on over there and do what I love. So it was pretty, pretty nice, man. I imagine that was some rough transitions though, from going on Friday, we were in the elk woods packing out a bowl. And now (laughs) here I am sitting in this classroom on Monday with no AC, listening to this guy talk about whatever subject yeah no that's that's the truth it really is but i got a little bit you know a little bit of the hunt bug out of me before i headed off to college instead of being stuck in there and being like oh man it's opening day and here i am yeah for sure yeah that would be rough too missing completely i definitely take the situation you got i'm just saying that first monday in class is probably rough (laughs) yeah no, it is. My dad's sending me pictures. So the clients just got this book. Wish you were here. You could take some good, better pictures than me. <laughs> yeah, my dad's the same way. Um, I'll take some really cool pictures of him fishing, you know, get the scenery, get the color. And then when it's my turn to catch the fish, he'll take the picture and like the top half of my head will be cut off or the tail of the <laughs> fish will be cut off. And so I always, now I'm learning, like I take a picture, put the fish in the net in the lake so he's breathing. And then I check the camera, see if he got the right angle. Uh, back up a few steps, Dad. Make yeah. sure you get the whole fish in the picture. <laughs> no, that's exactly, that's exactly the point I was making there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Well, Branson, man, it's been awesome to meet you. It's been fun to finally connect and find out I got a cousin out in Montana. Um, We'll have to figure out some way to get together, whether that's behind dad on a elk hunt or just doing something random. Um, It'd be super cool to get out together and start hunting and 
and catch up on lost time, as you'd say. I can't believe my dad forgot that one of his cousins moved out to Montana to become a hunting guy. That That's like pertinent information, Dad. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, he goes, yeah, no, I remember yeah, we had we'll a cousin to... that moved out to Montana to do a hunting guide. I haven't talked to him in a while. I'm like, Dad, come on. We've been going to Montana all these years. We should have known. So. Yeah, exactly. Hunting right around Trout Creek, Thompson Falls, right in our area, right in there. But oh, no, we'll have to definitely get together and do something. I mean, Brad Hoppy, he's always telling me, come every summer, come out fishing, come out fishing. I want to take you fishing. So maybe we'll make a trip out there and I can have you tag along. We can go catch some muskies with Brad. Oh, that would be it. That would be phenomenal. I really would love that. I've caught one muskie in my life. It was I was trying to catch a muskie, so I can't say it was an accident, but I knew nothing what I was doing, and I ended up catching a 48. So, um, pure luck. Like, that one was pure luck. <laughs> yeah, I still don't have a tally for any muskies, so that's something on the agenda. All right, I'll be first guy on the net then. I'll let you catch them first. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here, Branson. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your evening. Uh, and I'm going to have to get you and your dad back on the other podcast, the two bucks podcast. Cause I bet that's a real cool story of being a rodeo, uh, a rodeo. Um, I don't know what he bull ride horses, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all, but yeah, he, he bull rided. Yeah. Bull rider an outfitter going to guide school, guiding in Jackson hole, a whole story of how you guys built the, the Western timber outfitters. And so I think that'd be a cool episode for the other podcast as well. So we'll have to get you guys back in soon. No, that'd be super fun. I enjoyed this. I really did. We'll have to do this again time soon. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening, folks.